Poddo. You're listening to Law and Disorder, a weekly podcast which aims to get to the heart of the big legal issues of the day. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Law and Disorder. I'm Charlie Faulkner. And who else have we got here? Helena Kennedy. Today we are going to be talking about libel, with particular reference to the case of Vardy versus Rooney which was decided in 2022. So what is libel? Libel is where either somebody, through an oral remark, says something rude about you that is not true, or in the written word says something about you that is not true. If somebody says something about you that is reduces your reputation in the eyes of the world, then you've been libeled. Unless they can prove it's true, you can get damages from them. This is more or less correct, although I would slightly correct you. More or less, I would slightly correct you to say that an oral defamatory statement is slander. Yes. Not libel. Sorry. Now, it is, as you've explained, Charlie, libel is a species of defamation. And the basics of the law of defamation were set out very clearly in an epic judgment by Lord Sumption in a case called Le Show against independent print in 2019. Now, I have a particular attachment to that case because the case was about a divorce that took place in Dubai where it was said that the husband, Mr. Lachaud, had behaved questionably towards the wife in the Dubai proceedings as regards the custody of their child. These were published in the Independent and the Evening Standard, and Mr. Lachaud sued them for libel. But there were also proceedings in the High Court about the child. I heard those proceedings, the case of Lachaud and Lachaud, and they were described in the libel proceedings by Lord Justice Davis in the Court of Appeal as conspicuously lucid, which, <laughs> which is not the normal language used by that court to describe my judgment, I should say. <laughs> Anyhow, when it went to the Supreme Court, Lord Sumption explained that defamation was an, as he put it, an ancient construct of the common law which had accumulated over the centuries a number of unique formal rules, some of which have been modified by statute, which I think is a way of saying that it is virtually incomprehensible. But the Defamation Act was the most recent, Defamation Act 2013, and that was introduced by the government in an attempt to stop this country becoming a venue for libel tourism. And whether it's had that effect is debatable. Now, as Charlie has said, the gist of the tort of libel is injury to the claimant's reputation and the associated injury to his or her feelings. So the first thing that has to be proved in a libel action is that the published words were defamatory at common law. And this means, as Charlie has said, that the words must tend to lower the claimant in the estimation of right-thinking members of society generally. That's the test. Has the objective meaning of the words lowered the claimant in the estimation of the notional, ordinary, reasonable reader? And if the answer to that is yes, then damage to the claimant's reputation is proved. But it's subject to Section 1 of the Defamation Act, which says that a statement is not defamatory unless the publication has caused or is likely to cause serious harm to the reputation of the claimant. Justice Marston, I want to say that you are conspicuously lucid. Thank you very always. Much. However, Anyhow, there's something you've left out. Which is? Because libel is, and it's important for people to know this, libel is the only civil action where a claimant coming to the court can demand money, but the burden of proof is not on the claimant, 
but on the other side. Mm -hmm. And it's the only civil area where that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, the proof is on the other side rather than on the claimant. You've got to prove that you've been reduced in the estimation you, yes. of reasonable, but, and it's got to cause serious harm. But, yes, but, but that burden is on the claimant. But the, the real burden, truth. the central burden, is on the other side. That is one of the problems in our libel laws. And it's why there is libel tourism. It's why people come here so that they can bring their cases here because they wouldn't be able to get a run at that in their own yeah. countries. Can I just finish this little bit as lucidly as possible? You are absolutely right. So having set out those basic principles, as Charlie rightly says, the burden is on the claimant to prove that the objective meaning of the words lowered the estimation of the claimant in the mind of the notional ordinary reasonable reader. And secondly, the claimant has to prove that he or she will be caused serious harm or is likely to be caused serious harm by the publication. And if those can't be proved, then the claim will fail. But if those can be proved, and they're usually conceded in libel cases, then the burden, as you rightly said, Elena, goes to the defendant to demonstrate one of the defences, which are, one, that the imputation conveyed by the statement is true or substantially true, two, that the statement complained of was an honest opinion, or three, that the statement was a matter of public interest and the defendant reasonably believed it was in the public interest to publish it. Yeah. Those defences, the burden is on the defendant. And most of the cases centre around whether the imputation was substantially true. Yeah. And in those cases, the defendant has to make the running, as you rightly say, Helena. Even if you go to the last one, which is it's not substantially true, but they you reasonably believed it, the focus is then... Mm -hmm. on the defendant, and they've got to prove they've they have got reasonable to prove, methods got as to well prove as... Those defendants. We're now going to turn to the well-known case of Vardy versus Rooney. Now, Mrs. Rooney had a personal Instagram account which had about 50 trusted followers, and stories from that account kept appearing in the Sun newspaper. Mrs. Rooney suspected that Mrs. Vardy, one of her followers, was the leaker, so she set a trap to prove that it was Mrs. Vardy. She placed some deliberately false stories in her account and blocked all her followers except Mrs. Vardy. Sure enough, the stories appeared in the sun. So, on the 9th of October 2019, Mrs. Rooney posted a statement, which was called in the case the Reveal Post, on her Twitter, Facebook and her public Instagram accounts. The meaning of that post was later described by Mr. Justice Warby at a preliminary hearing to be this. This is what the meaning was. Over a period of years, Mrs. Vardy had regularly and frequently abused her status as a trusted follower of Mrs. Rooney's personal Instagram account by secretly informing the Sun newspaper of Mrs. Rooney's private posts and stories, thereby making public without Mrs. Rooney's permission, a great deal of information about Mrs. Rooney, her friends and family, which she did not want made public. That is what the meaning of her post was. Now, Mrs. Vardy sued Mrs. Rooney for libel. She said this was defamatory. And Mrs. Rooney defended it on these grounds, that the statement was true and that it was in the public interest to publish it. It was agreed, as I've indicated earlier, as normally happens, that the words were defamatory at common law and for the purposes of the 2013 Defamation Act, they caused or are likely to cause serious harm to Mrs. Vardy's reputation. So the central issue in the case was whether the meaning of the words was substantially true. Now, the case had six preliminary case, case management hearings and six days in court. The costs were enormous. And you have to ask whether it was 
reasonable use of the court's resources, but it made for good entertainment. And the judge was Mrs. Justice Stain. I do think it's important that our listening public, whoever they may be, should have the context of this because these were the wives of very famous footballers. And there's almost a club of the wives of very famous footballers, the women and girlfriends sort of wags club, as seen by the media. And the media would take as much interest almost in the wives and what they wore and what their relationships were and how they were behaving as almost in the in the footballers. But the attention given to the wags was also very remunerative. They got columns in newspapers. They got opportunities um, to appear in the media generally and fashion outlets and the, and the like. So there was more to this than two women having an argument. And it was funded and made possible by virtue of the fact that they were both women married to very wealthy yes. men. Yes, and perhaps unwisely assumed that when I use the names Rooney and Vardy, people would have worked out who I was talking about. Well, but I'm sure most yeah, people, people did, would, but, yes. but some people might now, not. Now, Mrs. Justice Stain, who comes from a distinguished legal lineage, recorded this in her judgment. She said this, Mrs. Vardy denies that she leaked any information from the private Instagram account. She accepts that it is possible that Mrs. Watt, her agent, accessing the private Instagram account via Mrs. Vardy's Instagram account may have had some involvement in the articles that appear to be derived from stories or posts in the private Instagram account. However, if that is so, Mrs. Vardy denies that she authorised, approved, condoned or knew anything about that information being given to the press. So that's a an interesting defence, isn't it? That her agent, without her knowledge, may have made the the disclosures on her behalf. Well, it's very unlikely to be true. It's and right. indeed, didn't the agent lose her telephone in the sea? We're or coming like to the, coming the to, side we're, of a boat. We're, we're, coming, we're coming to the unfortunate mishap that befell that telephone when it fell into the North Sea a bit later. So the issue in the case was a factual issue, whether Mrs. Vardy leaked the stories or authorised their leakage. Now, the first interesting legal point is that Mrs. Vardy sought to subpoena, as I persist in calling it, but I don't think you can allowed to call it anymore. Witness summons. Witness summons the journalists responsible for the articles. And indeed, she signed a waiver of any right to source protection in relation to the articles. In that waiver, she said the authors can disclose publicly if I was the source of the articles. Now, the subpoenas were set aside on the journalist's application in reliance on their right to protect their sources under the Contempt of Court Act. And the judge felt that the whole thing was basically a... Tactical. Tactical, yes, as she rightly said, in serving witness summaries, because when you serve, you have to say, if you subpoena somebody, you have to serve a document saying what you think they're going to say. In serving witness summaries on behalf of the journalists, which purported to, but did not reflect the evidence they had indicated they would give, to the effect that neither Ms. Vardy nor Ms. Watt was the source of the articles. It is probable, said Mrs. Justice Stain, that Mrs. Vardy was seeking to pressurise Mrs. Rooney into settling a case that would have appeared to be fatally weakened. Well, because lawyers would have explained to Mrs. Vardy yeah. that uh, no uh, newspaper would authorise their journalists to disclose, even with the consent of uh, Mrs. Vardy, the fact that she was not their source, because it creates 
these problems Indeed. into the future. Now, you would have thought in such circumstances that the first witness on behalf of Mrs. Vardy would have been, apart from Mrs. Vardy, Ms. Watt, would you not? You would. But she was not present. And she was poorly, I understand. <laughs> what the judge said was Ms. Vardy did not call her close friend and agent as a witness, given the allegation that information from the private Instagram account was disclosed directly to journalists at The Sun by Ms. Watt, with Ms. Vardy's knowledge and approval, Ms. Watt is a vital witness whose absence is striking, Yes, she said. Now, the judge then addressed in detail this curious contemporaneous phenomenon which uniquely affects users of WhatsApp who are involved in litigation or other judicial inquiries. Everybody else who uses WhatsApp has their chat history backed up in the cloud so that if your phone is lost or replaced, the entire WhatsApp chat history can be instantly replicated on your new device. But... People who were involved in litigation or government ministers required to participate in public Let's inquiries forget the all, seem, all seem to suffer extraordinary technological disasters. It is, isn't it? Whereby their WhatsApp chat histories are irretrievably lost or shorn of their attachments, not merely from their telephones, but from their backup in the cloud. Now, it's important to understand what these people want us, including judges, to believe. They say that... When they replace their phones, instead of accessing the backup in the cloud and downloading a copy of the entire chat history onto their new device, they somehow manage to do the exact opposite delete and it. delete the entire backup. And this mysterious syndrome has afflicted even our current prime minister and his predecessor, Mr. Johnson. Now, Ms. Vardy's evidence was even more elaborate. I hesitate to use the word far-fetched. She maintains that while she was attempting to export her chats into a zip file to send to her solicitors, she managed to create the zip file of the messages, but without the media attachments. But when she tried to create a zip file for the media attachments, she managed to delete from all her devices, her telephone, her laptop, as well as the cloud, her entire WhatsApp chat history with Ms. Watt, but no one else. Further, she said that at the time her computer suddenly died and was disposed of before anybody could examine it. Now, not to worry, you might think, because Ms. Watt would surely have on her telephone all the counterpart messages and images, but no, because Ms. Watt, as you've said, says she dropped her phone in the North Sea. And while everything else was on her phone was backed up in the cloud, for some mysterious reason, her WhatsApp chats were not. And she had deleted all the WhatsApp chats in 2019, except that she hadn't, because the judge pointed out in her judgment that there was evidence of her sending WhatsApp chats after the date when they were all supposedly lost in the North Sea. Now, the experts in this case said this was all complete nonsense. Experts? Yes, you wonder why we had experts in this case. When would you have an expert in a case? When there's something that nobody can understand except the experts. Yes. Do you think that this was beyond the, a reasonable judge's understanding? That I he, do not believe this was beyond a reasonable judge's I mean, understanding. My seven-year-old <laughs> grandson would be able to. Well, probably your seven-year-old grandson would be, probably be more technically on the ball than Mrs. Justice Dean. <laughs> but, but it was nice. I know, with no disrespect to Mrs. Justice Dean. And then, of course, after the date of the, the zips were lost, what about further messages between Mrs. Vardy and Ms. Watt? Well, they were all lost, but she said because she changed her telephone to which the expert says, well, if you change your telephone, you don't lose your messages. A chapter of accidents. A chapter, a, a chapter of accidents. Mrs. Vardy. I mean, the fact and, is... And I think I can sense a tone of judicial scepticism. Exactly. exactly. Um, what, what I don't understand in this case is why it was necessary to have this enormous state trial when it was so obvious 
that there had been deliberate destruction of the key evidence. Mm. I just want to demonstrate why the evidence is, to put it mildly, implausible. Can you fire up WhatsApp on your telephones? Yes, I've yeah. got my WhatsApp. Right, so and can you press chats? Yeah. Yes. And can, can you press the little wheel at the bottom right which says settings? Oh, yes. Do you see that? I've never yeah. done that before. Oh, you've never done it before. So this is what... This Hold case on, I'm the... behind. I'm chats, and then going to settings. Yeah, bottom right. What am I pressing now? Just bottom right settings. settings. Now, in the middle of the next page, do you yeah. see two-thirds of the way down, it says chats? Yes. Yes. Could you press, press that, please? Yeah. Got that. Okay, and then you've got another page which says chats, and then if you look in the middle of the page, it says chat backup. Do you see that? Yes, oh, yes. I do. Okay, now if you press that, Helena, what does it say? Oh, at the top, though, it says something very interesting. It says, back up your chat history and media to iCloud. So if you lose your phone or switch to a new one, your chat history is safe. You can restore your chat history and media when you reinstall WhatsApp. Well, there you are. Have you got the same thing, Charlie? I have, indeed. Now, if you go to the middle of the page, yeah. it says auto backup. What does it say to the right of that, Charlie? Chat backup. It says daily. Daily. Yours says daily. And what does yours say? Mine says weekly. Yours and mine is set at weekly, which is the default. Because oh, yeah. I've looked this up on the internet. It is the default. Charlie has been changed from weekly to daily. Anxious about because, Anxious about losing. Exactly. But one of the options is to tap off. off. What we're being asked to believe in this case is that somehow somebody had ticked off. Now, why would you do that? Why would you turn off backup? Why would you turn off? Why would you penetrate through these levels of instructions and turn off backup? I don't know. That is the question that Rebecca Vardy needs to ask. You are not just a judge. Cutting a long story short, the story is fundamentally incredible, which leads me to the first basic principle, which is how do we allow these cases to proceed when the evidence is so demonstrably absurd. You've done that, and you've done it to my complete satisfaction in the last five minutes. Judges should be quite wary of knocking out cases very early on rather than having a trial because things that might seem slightly fantastic at a quick look in an interlocutory thing, i.e. something that happens before the trial, might not look quite so fantastic when you get to the trial. If you ended up in a situation where they say, well, this postmaster is saying the computer's wrong in every single mm. respect and the evidence yes. is overwhelming that the computer is never wrong, strike out his yes, defence. that's How true. The, no, no, the, the, over, the over-clever <laughs> judge might be minded to strike things out which should go to trial. Yes, but listen, you know that um, the answer to this is that you have to have punitive damages for people who persist in cases that they shouldn't be taking through the courts. And this case was one where I suspect that Mrs Vardy just was so emotionally committed to this case that nothing was going to persuade her to drop it. And so um, it went all the way. And the judge at the end, and I I didn't follow it because I have to tell you I wasn't that interested, but I think that uh, the way that the system has to deal with this is to recognise that this is the indulgence of people with a lot of money. And I really feel that abusing the system because you're a rich has to come with a cost and the cost should be in damages. And I don't think you can exclude people from taking their cases to court because sometimes taking cases to court can actually reveal rather important things. Well, in this case, Rebecca Bardi sued Colleen Rooney saying Colleen had libeled libeled her. And of course, her claim was dismissed because she was telling lies about what had happened to the evidence Mm -hmm. and nobody believed her. But the basic point that that, um, 
Wagatha um, Rooney. Rooney had established, which was that she had only 50 followers on this Instagram group. She blocked 49 of them. Yeah. They were the only person who knew about the so material. You would have thought it would have been a short hearing, wouldn't you? Well, but that's because Rebecca Vardy ran all these complicated defences to indicate it wasn't her, it was her agent doing it without authority. You see, you see, Nick, you're pointing out an abuse, and I do think it is about the ways in which people can buy and use the courts and weaponize the courts against people that they're cross with. But much more serious about the whole business of libel is the fact that the, the super rich, you know, Russian oligarchs, people who are hugely wealthy, can sue genuine journalists who are trying to reveal their corrupt practices, the ways in which they've got their money, and so on. And, and that, I think, is one of the scandals about libel, because law is now a market in this area. Lawyers can earn £900 an hour, and their junior counsel, half of that. Solicitors are acting for uh, oligarchs earn even more per hour. A few days in court means millions of pounds. And so what we have to reckon with is what does this do when we're talking about the media, investigative journalism, and speaking truth to power, and the ways in which you can silence journalists. Catherine Belton wrote a book called Putin's People, and it was an award-winning book. And Roman Abramovich sued her, and it was settled out of court because she just basically was not going to be able to afford to be involved in one of these cases. And so if you're wealthy enough, you can stop a case in its tracks because people know they are going to be driven into bankruptcy and worse if they proceed. She was a young yes. woman journalist and her research was pretty amazing. So there's important things. We had this ridiculous business recently where Prigorjan, the man who was the founder and boss of Wagner, that horrible outfit who'd yes. been involved in Ukraine and so yeah. on, but are involved across Africa, you know, funding militias and doing really wicked things. And yet he was able, he was somebody who was sanctioned, and yet it, it was, the Treasury gave special dip, dispensation to bring a lawsuit against a man called uh, Elliot Higgins was a journalist and he was writing, tweeting articles about Prigozhin and his bad behavior and his wickedness. And Prigozhin wanted to sue him and put him out of business. That, the Treasury allowed that as a breach, a breach of his normal sanctions yeah. regime on the basis that his reputation was being damaged. This man has no reputation. And Elliot Higgins now has had costs of £70,000, although the case ended up being dropped. Pogorjian's supposed to be dead. First of all, we still have this business of the super rich being able to do terrible things yes. against journalists. We also have the business of the way in which the burden of proof is actually on the defendant. On, on the defendant. And because the issue is normally true. And because there's so much money in this now that, in fact, even the lawyers end up perhaps playing their part in keeping yes. a thing going. This leads me to my question is... As a matter of general public policy, is libel law still fit for purpose? Well, of course, there are, there, there are times when someone is horribly traduced in the media or in a book and lies told about them which can destroy their lives. And that matters. And there has to be ways in which our legal system provides remedies. But what you have to have, I mean, I think that there should be punitive damages. Do you think, I think that there should, should be... change it to be like the Americans, Charlie? Well, we, you have we, got cases like Madeleine McCann's parents yes. who were repeatedly oh, traduced right. in the newspapers as potentially killing their daughter or doing something terrible to their daughter, which is completely and irredeemably untrue. They should have uh, the protection of the libel laws. And what's more, it's obvious that anybody who wants to make that allegation should prove it. They should not have to disprove so it. So in America, you have to prove actual malice. 
Yes, and that's not right. In that circumstance, and they had this in some legal systems, the McCanns lost their libel actions because they'd said they got it from some disaffected and unsatisfactory Portuguese police officer. But it seems to me you must have libel. This is the balance. The Americans feel that freedom of expression, which is the First Amendment to the Constitution, is so important that there has to be a requirement, if you're a public figure, when they usually, usually are, of proving actual malice in the thing which I think goes too far. I agree with you. I think the the Americans fetishise freedom of speech in a way that often allows people to say really disgraceful and racist and uh, and terrible things about people, and they say, well, it's my my freedom to do so. And I think that uh, they get that balance wrong. But I also think that freedom of speech is vitally important, and so I do think that the burden of proof should be moved. What about the case of Chris Jeffries, the man who was alleged to have murdered somebody's block of flats who plainly hadn't done it? He brought libel proceedings. He didn't have to prove he wasn't the murderer. Mm. He didn't have to start a forensic examination to do it. Everybody, all of us around this table would agree that Madeleine McCann's parents and Chris Jeffries should be protected and they should be protected by the libels. We're all dubious, aren't we, about Colleen Rooney's soaking up six days of court time in a moment of court crisis to determine who did leak the basement leak story that she had put onto her Instagram. And I'm happy to say that Mrs. Justice Stain howled that it was not in the public interest that this be published. But she was able to use the courts as a sort of plaything of the rich, just in the way that the Prigozhian examples that Helena have given are intimidating. Where do we strike the balance? What do you say to the fact these laws were fashioned before the era of social media? It's impossible to police social media. So what's the point in having these laws? Well, I I think that there is a point in having these laws. The fact fact that Chris Jeffrey could be described as a murderer on social media should not be a reason that he cannot get vindication from the courts. And the courts are really important in being able to say whatever social media says, this guy did not kill the person in the block of flats. I would like to see the Law Commission visiting this um, whole subject because we need it to be done. Politicians are frightened of it, um, but the politicians and political parties in government tend to listen to the Law Commission's recommendations. And I think that we should be thinking about First of all, as I've said, the reversal of the burden of proof. But I also think that we should be introducing a, a much more carefully defined tort. But are you in favour of reverse that should the McCann's had proofs who did do well, it? I mean, I think, there's a, I think you've got to find ways of protecting. I mean, I'm not suggesting the American system, but I am suggesting that, yes, they could easily come and say, I don't think that that would have been a problem for the McCann's. But I, I do not, think... No. I, don't, I, 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 I think I, I agree with Charlie that if you've published something and you're claiming it's true, you should prove it was true. Yeah, I agree with that. You can make allegations against people, say, Nicholas Mostyn, as a judge, takes money from rich people. I don't think Nicholas Mostyn should then have to, as it were, reveal all his bank accounts to set out what the position is. It should be for the media to prove it rather than him exposing everything. And proving a negative is often very difficult. Yes, that is absolutely true. The, The problem is about statutory reform, as Lord Sumption said, coming back to where we started... Mm. is that statutory reform, he said he told it happened in 1888, 1952, 1996 and 2013, each of which sought to modify existing common law rules piecemeal without always attending to the impact of the changes on the rest of the law. There's never been a comprehensive... No, I agree. But the, the, the defamation change in 2013, that was maybe the most significant, was, yeah. apart from the jurisdiction stuff, which is to try and stop libel tourism, was to say there had to be serious harm. Yes. Without a second thought, the McCann example, the Jeffrey example of serious harm, you think for Pete's <laughs> sake, 
Mrs. Vardy, stop wasting your time on that. It's not serious harm, even though she no doubt would say, people were saying I was a liar and yeah. unreliable, which is a serious libel in one sense, but it's not serious yeah. harm. Shouldn't the courts block the Vardy case and allow the mechanics? Because it was conceded the serious harm was, strangely enough. I'm because but I assume the serious harm was conceded on the basis that the test is, is it a serious imputation on yes, your reputation? Yes, exactly. And if she was lying yeah, exactly. or breaking confidences, that might but, be a serious imputation. I mean, and of course, Jonathan Summerton, Lord Summerton, is right about sometimes these shifts in law have impacts in places where you don't expect it. And that's why I think it's something that the Law Commission should really be, be looking at. I actually was unhappy about the removal of juries, I mean, in libel cases, which mm. we did in 2013. I do believe that in some of these cases, juries really have a sort of their finger on what the, the public pulses on reputation and things like that. And so particularly where it's around the business of, of the ways in which I think the rich abuse the legal system. For I, know, I think that's a business. very, very good point because a jury could say to Rebecca Vardy, they would obviously dismiss the charge on the merits, but you assume that time had been wasted in relation to that and somehow she'd won on some bit. They could say, well, not going to give you any damages. Or, or, or punitive damages well, uh, 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 in certain circumstances where it's appropriate. But I mean, what I'm saying is that I just think that this whole thing has to be really reconsidered. And we also should be saying, unless in relation to these oligarchs, you know, who, who are enabling Putin, that bringing cases in our courts, you have to show that it's something that um, actually pertains to our but jurisdiction. Is, 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 publication. Not, but yeah. publication is the thing. And if there's yeah. a substantial... What they, what they don't allow anymore as a result of the change in jurisdiction is... It's basically published somewhere else, but there are sort of 10 public... Yes. Ten no, no, it's, it's, but if it's published in the Financial Times... Or no, no, no yeah. listen, we're, we're busy here talking about the abuses of the media, and we've been talking about them in our previous podcasts, but press freedom is fundamentally important. In, really, in, in, really right, important. It's really, really important. And I think it is being held back also by the libel laws. I mean, I think that people who are journalists, investigators, people who are calling out the stuff of corruption, abuses of human rights, and so on, are actually being silenced. Look, for example, about the business. I mean, there's quite a lot of talk at the moment about the Assange case. He's due to be extradited any, mm. any day, I mean, or whenever, to the United States of America. And lots of publishers, you know, I'm talking about the New York Times, you know, Develt, uh, major newspapers around the world are saying, hold on a minute, you know, you might not like everything that Assange has done, but to, to, be, to be prosecuting him so that he ends up spending his life in jail in a supermax prison in America, the long arm of the state is reaching into publishing, into the business of uh, whistleblowing, into the exposure of things that the public should know. But that's much more about extradition than it is well, about... It's, well, it's about extradition, it's also about... The reason why publishers around the world have taken it up is because they, they feel it has a chilling effect on press freedom. And I think that the libel laws in Britain also yeah. have a chilling effect on I, I press want to freedom. talk very briefly about two particular cases. One is Sonia Sutcliffe. Do you remember her? Yes, yes I do. And the other is Johnny Depp. Do you remember him? I most certainly yeah. do. So uh, as for Sonia Sutcliffe, you remember that that was the case where the damages were awarded, which were enormous. Yeah. And they went to the Court of Appeal who said, <coughs> no, 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 no. Damages are going to be cut right down so that the level of damages now is capped at £300,000. The libel against Sonia Sutcliffe was that she knew what her husband, the yes. Yorkshire Ripper, was up to. And right. that was, that's a very, very serious libel. She got about a million pounds. 
Yeah. And the Court of Appeal cut that right down and said it, you've got to have regard to what damages are awarded for personal injuries yes. and things of that nature. Yeah. And basically since then, the damages have been capped. At, it's gone up slightly to £300,000. Yeah. So you have these cases which are occupying the High Court for up to 10 days where the claim cannot be more than £300,000. Money's not the only thing, though. But money is not the only thing. Yeah, I mean, no. it's reputation it's that they reputation. take time to yeah. deal with. And mm-hmm. in the sorts of examples we've just been discussing, whilst we... I'm not in favour of Rebecca Bardi and Colleen Rooney taking up valuable time. What do you say about somebody who's alleged to know about the Yorkshire Ripper's activities when in fact she didn't? But we've also got to think about Nick's issue about having some kind of other system for dealing with complaints which the courts could divert um, certain cases to. And unfortunately, the Independent Press Complaints Commission no doesn't do the business. And uh, and so what we have to do is invent something better. And there's a, the, the campaigning group Hacked Off has been very clear about the way in which an alternative could be created. And so I think that, um, again, I would like to see some genuine alternative that had the confidence of all sides in delivering some alternative that would divert away from the courts the cases of the Wagatha Christie kind. Yeah, I agree. Get rid of the Wagatha Christie type cases, allow the McCann cases, also stop the Russian, the obvious Russian oligarchy. Exactly. But then you need, presumably there are cases where somebody is said to be an oligarch, but in fact it's just any old Russian and you've got to be able to uh, deal with that case as well. Johnny Depp litigated here. He sued here and lost in front of Mr Justice Andrew Nicholl. Yeah. Mm who gave a full reason judgment. Yes. Yeah. She then litigated in Virginia. And won in front and, of a jury. And won in front of a jury which gave no reasons. Yeah. Yes. Even though the allegation was identical. Yes, but I, I know that we will have an opportunity of discussing this in a future episode of her podcast. But I think if you watch the um, a documentary about that case, you'll see the way in which um, uh, social media had a really deterrent it, and uh, terrible uh, effect. I was doing a case in the Royal Courts of Justice next door to the court where the Johnny Depp case was going on. And every morning, this is an English case, Johnny Depp arrived to cheers and claps. Everybody loved Johnny Depp. Not everybody, but there appeared to be a groundswell of whoever was participating and watching the case from outside in liking Johnny Depp. Every time Amber Heard appeared, she would be booed and hissed. hissed. And she won in front of the judge in uh, Richmond, Virginia, Presumably, that sort of public view about them was then reflected in the way it that was. the jurors. But this is why I'm perhaps not so keen on the re- restoration of juries. Oh no! I, 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 <laughs> well, I mean, I, if you want the public view, I've, I've spent my life in front of juries, and obviously, times I've liked their their verdict, and sometimes not. But I really believe in them, and I think it's a way in which the public are engaged in the system, and that's why it's so important. Well, that has been a super episode, in my opinion, in which we have unearthed that. Interesting phenomenon, WhatsApp disintegration syndrome, and we have <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we have examined in wi- in more wider detail the merit of the laws of libel. We will return next week, so it's goodbye from me, goodbye from Charlie, and goodbye from Helena. You've been listening to Law and Disorder with Helena Kennedy, Charlie Faulkner, and me, Nicholas Mostyn. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Podo. Our theme music is by Anthony Willis. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app. We'd be delighted to know what you think of the podcast, so do please email us your thoughts on lawanddisorderfeedback at gmail.com. See you next week.